This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. Sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, friends. I would, in fact, uh, open the window and shout mad as hell, uh, except I'm afraid I might catch a draft, and that's the last thing I need right now. I'm actually hunkered down in my home office uh, doing the show tonight, uh, somewhere deep in the wilderness of uh, Old Thorn Hill. And... Uh, We've got a good show for you tonight. A little bit later, a gentleman I just recently uh, met up in Innisfil, up the old 400, and a uh, very interesting gentleman. Went down into his, his, his basement and uh, has kind of a laboratory set up down there, and uh, he, he's really on the forefront, I think, of research into EVPs, electronic voice phenomena, the supposed uh, discarnate, disembodied voices that are captured on tape. Are they ghosts? Are they aliens? Uh, who knows? Is it some mechanical failure? We'll meet John Mitzi in about 40 minutes time uh, to discuss the science behind EVPs. He has a lot of interesting theories and as I say he's a real innovator. He's actually uh, working on uh, different devices uh, in order to capture these EVPs and we'll play some EVPs that he's, um, he's also recorded. A fascinating area. I'm not sure which side that, that you fall on. Believer? Skeptic? We all have to be skeptics, I think, um, when we approach these things. And, and John Mitzi certainly is uh, taking a, a more of a, a scientific, skeptical approach. Uh, but we'll let you decide after you hear these EVPs. John Mitzi coming up uh, from uh, a pair of research Ontario. Uh, first of all, however, a recent article in Huffington Post, uh, the online edition, uh, which described a, a perfect storm that is developing uh, this coming spring for Lyme disease. This, uh, uh, this, 
this is really a scourge. In fact, the, the, the World Health Organization described Lyme disease as being one of the worst infectious diseases now in the world. It's, a, it's an epidemic, except apparently here in Canada, where everyone seems to be deny, deny, deny uh, that it is an issue. And uh, uh, I thought it was very important to discuss this as we are now nicely into the spring and people are, you know, stomping around in the woods. And, and, and that's a good way to catch a Lyme disease. These deer ticks, blood-sucking deer ticks, uh, can attach themselves to you, burrow under your skin, and um, uh, set in motion a uh, a wide range of, uh, of of illnesses. And and the thing about Lyme disease it, is it tends to mimic, as we'll we'll find out shortly, it tends to mimic um, many other diseases, including um, multiple sclerosis. I had no idea, and fibromyalgia, and uh, uh, what else? Uh, boy, you name it. Um, uh, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes. Uh, in any event, we're uh, we're going to find out all about uh, Lyme disease and what Ontario, the province of Ontario, is or should I say, is not doing uh, about this terrible disease. Halki Ferry is a physical anthropologist and a medical science writer whose articles on the political aspects of medicine are featured regularly in Canada and the U.S. She also runs Cos Publishing, Inc., a publishing company that specializes in books on the politics of medicine, and uh, we've commandeered her here uh, tonight to discuss Lyme disease. Helki Ferry. Helki, how are you? Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Interesting piece uh, that you sent me from the, the Huffington Post dated April uh, 2012, Lyme disease, the perfect storm is headed our way. So what's different? Why is this spring uh, likely to be worse, say, than others? Um, the, the fact that we had a mild winter would allow the vectors that can transmit the disease to uh, survive longer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they survive longer and so on. But um, while everything in that article is fundamentally correct, actually we've had this perfect storm for a long time because the research done at the University of Alberta showed that these um, spirochetes, the, which means they're corkscrewed bacteria, uh, and that's why they're called spirochetes. Syphilis is one of the famous spirochetal bacteria. Um, so is Lyme and several other diseases, um, they are able to survive in permafrost. Uh, they just dig deeper. So we have Lyme disease in Canada uh, everywhere, all the way into the Yukon, where the uh, uh, creatures that are capable of, of transmitting it, which is a fairly large variety of ticks, uh, simply can borrow into the ground as well and then come out. So right now we may have, according to the citation, citations given in the Huffington Post newsletter, we may have more, but we've always had it in very large numbers, even in cold climates, regardless of any observed changes in the climate. Yeah, the, the Huffington Post here describes it uh, as a perfect storm uh, for, for two reasons. One, which you just identified, and that's the unusually warm winter, which left deer ticks alive and hungry and looking for a meal. The other one, they say, is a dramatic flip-flop in the acorn cycle. What does yes. the acorn cycle have to do with, uh, with, uh, I, I with this? I can't tell you exactly how the acorn cycle works, but there are times when there are more acorns and there are times when there are less. And uh, this may be influenced by shifts in climate uh, so that the cycle either uh, produces 
far more acorns than normally, or it produces far less. But that influences the deer population in two ways. Uh, one is that there are going to be more deer born, who are which are capable of surviving because the mothers have enough to eat to to to, to rear them to adulthood. Um, and the other is that the deer, female deer, become um, are fertile more frequently because the acorn cycle cycle directly influences ovulation. When there aren't enough acorn, or very few, or there are very long winters, which do not allow for a lot of acorns to be grown, then the deer do not ovulate. And they do ovulate when there is a lot of acorns available. And this adds to the infestation of the ticks by having more deer to feed on and the cycle of the tick requires the blood of some kind of a it's a sort of wee little vampire uh, it requires some kind of a creature from which to feed and uh, that can be a human that can be a cat a dog a, a cow a deer a moose a songbird a migrating bird there's a there are a great many and if they have the ability to get more food because the victims as it were had more acorns you end up with an escalation where one element of the equation in enhances the rest. Helka Ferry is uh, with uh, me here on The Conspiracy Show. She's a medical science writer, and, uh, of course, she runs KOS Publishing. Yeah, Cross um, is the island on which Hippocrates was born. Ah, there we go. And, uh, and also, of course, responsible for the great publication, Vitality Magazine. No, I write no? for it. Julia Woodford is the owner and editor-in-chief of it, but I've been writing the lead feature for that uh, magazine for 12 years, every Thank month. Thank you for that. Hard to believe that you know, there may be some people out there who, who aren't really familiar with Lyme disease, so let's back up a little bit and just give us a, a, a quick thumbnail sketch. What actually is Lyme disease? We know that, uh, that it's, it's, you know, it's caused these, these blood-sucking ticks, deer ticks, uh, but, but what happens when a, a, a tick attaches itself to the body? Um, <clears throat> Lyme disease is transmitted by a, a bacterium, which is the most famous one of which is the um, Borrelia burgdorferi, called Artevilli burgdorfer, who's a Swiss scientist who discovered it. There are 24 at this count. By the time this show goes on the air, it could be more. Uh, 24 species of the Borrelia burgdorferi known. And they are usually found together with co-infections. They're almost never found alone in anybody's bloodstream or in any animal's bloodstream, but generally are found together with other bacteria and with some uh, particular kinds of, uh, sometimes viruses and sometimes, um, th th there are a number of creatures that attach themselves in a merry-go-round with the uh, Borrelia burgdorferi. But the Borrelia burgdorferi itself, the discoverer is, you know, in the 1970s this was discovered, uh, the, dis the, the creature itself, the bacterium itself, is very, very old. We have fossilized ones going back into the upper Paleolithic, which is, you know, 30 to 50,000 years ago. So wherever human beings have been in close company with other animals, and in the case of, you know, prehistoric period, you have mostly deer and whatever it is they were hunting. 
So wherever you have human beings in close proximity to, to other animals, you wind up with diseases getting an opportunistic uh, leg up and can then develop by using humans. So you don't <clears throat> have something new coming up here. This is a very old disease, and it goes into the entire history of how de- diseases evolve, which has to do with how humans use the landscape. Uh, so once they started taming horses, they got tetanus. Uh, tetanus didn't, wasn't lethal to humans. There are many, many examples like that. Anyway, with the Burkdorferi, you have a situation where it now has become more and more accustomed, as it were, to humans because of other close contact. We no longer go running around hunting all the time, but dogs and cats are just as good. And then, of course, if you walk through a forest, you are just as good for a blood meal. So these little ticks get on on the uh, on the on the skin. They burrow into your skin. They feed on yeah. your blood, uh, and then once, uh, well, what what actually leads to this tick-borne illness? Is it uh, is it the, the well, bacteria it that, your, they, it that they that they carry? Your the 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 Borrelia will enter your bloodstream together with whatever they come with, whoever is in their company. Uh, after you've gone on a walk in Point Pili or in Algonquin Park, or particularly in the Mississauga Parks. These are all endemic, endemic, seriously endemic areas. And the latest research so shows that through songbirds and their droppings, which contain them as well, uh, and the creatures, that the, 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 the ticks that were stuck to the birds, once they're full of uh, blood and have got what they want, they don't know that they're carriers of a bacterium. They just start ticks that want a bit of blood. Uh, once that happens, they drop off the bird, and so they go all over Canada. But really seriously endemic areas are, include the Mississauga parks. Once they attach themselves to you after that particular blood meal that they got from, let's say, a songbird before, and they need another one, and then the bacteria introduced into your body in the same way as a mosquito will give you malaria. And then, of course, they're in a, you know, they've got themselves a smorgasbord and uh, will multiply. And being bacteria, uh, they cause um, various responses, which, are not, which we register as being sick. And they have the very uh, somewhat unusual <clears throat> property that they can disappear for long periods of time in the deep tissues of the body and then come out later. And the Japanese not too long ago figured out how they do it, and it's a perfect sine wave. So that allows doctors who are Lyme literate to treat people knowing mathematically from the time that they started treating them and got a blood test, which gives them a rough idea of when, when they were sick because they came with symptoms. Uh, they can then figure out when to treat them the next time when this thing comes back, when the symptoms come back. And they start with flu-like symptoms, in most people, <clears throat> but not exclusively so. So they have high fevers and you think you've got the flu, but then you keep getting the flu and you keep getting the flu and you keep getting the flu over and over again, you know, every two or three weeks. <coughs> and you say that this, this, uh, this tick-borne illness also mimics that a number of catastrophic uh, diseases like multiple sclerosis, yeah, Alzheimer's. The, the earlier stage is that, that you get that you get headaches and joint pain. Particularly, the strange thing is that it's usually only in one joint, like you get it in one knee or in one elbow. And it's very seriously painful. I have had Lyme disease, and I don't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, so you start with joint pains and flu-like stuff. 
and headaches, severe headaches, and your neck is stiff and so on. And, and of course, if you don't do the correct test, and you will give this guy a flu shot and make it worse because now the immune system is even more attacked instead of being treated with an antibiotic or with the alternative medicine routines which have been developed specifically for Lyme and are very, very effective. I know because I did it. I cannot take antibiotics. I'm allergic to all antibiotics, so I had to go the alternative route. And uh, once it becomes entrenched, once you have a huge population, you know, millions and millions of these little Burgdorferies living in you, then, of course, they go to the organ of choice. And if they happen to hit the heart, you wind up with a heart attack. And if they happen to go into the brain, you wind up with what looks like encephalitis, but it isn't encephalitis. Uh, Once it goes into all the joints, the doctor quite innocently will suspect rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, Once it goes into the nervous system, uh, the demyelination process that is characteristic of multiple sclerosis starts. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and so on, these are all typical ones. Chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. Chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. Now, ILADS, which is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, that's the international group of doctors who treat Lyme and diseases that are based on this routine of vectors introducing themselves into your bloodstream, uh, they are of the opinion on the basis of their experience, and this is published in mainstream journals, that every suspected multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on case, should always as a matter of routine be tested also for Lyme as part of the differential diagnosis because they have treated literally thousands of people with this ticket on their health and cured them. The most famous one is Dr. Martz, M-A-R-Z, who until last year was the president of ILADS, who was completely debilitated by uh, multiple sclerosis, I'm sorry, Lou Gehrig's disease, and had all the classic symptoms of Lou Gehrig's disease, and he couldn't feed himself, he was sitting in a wheelchair, and so on and so forth, and he finally had the idea himself, he was an oncologist by profession, a cancer specialist, that maybe he should be tested for Lyme, not only was he tested for it, he was treated properly, and it was completely cured, and became the president of ILADS, and runs a Lyme disease treatment clinic in Colorado now. It, it, listen, Helki, we'll, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, chronic Lyme disease. We'll also talk about, you mentioned the Japanese are very, you called them Lyme literate, and we'll find out how incredibly Lyme illiterate we seem to be here in Ontario. We'll also talk about a, a, a recent petition um, by actually uh, two politicians on usually opposite ends of the, uh, the, the floor of the provincial legislature. We'll find out about that as well. Helki Ferry is a medical science writer who runs Cost Publishing and will uh, continue to delve into Lyme disease, something that the World Health Organization now considers one of the worst infectious uh, diseases uh, in the world today. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, Blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We are back with Helki Ferry, a medical science writer. She runs Cost Publishing, and of course, she's a regular contributor to a Vitality a Magazine. We're talking about Lyme disease. Did I have that correct? Was it the World Health Organization who yes, declared... Yes, in 2008, the World Health Organization declared it the uh, uh, leading infectious disease in the world. <clears throat> in sheer numbers, it had overtaken malaria and tuberculosis. All this from a deer tick. Hard to believe. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's a tick. And there are many, many, many different kinds of ticks that are capable of doing this, as are certain kinds of mosquitoes. And it is also transmissible from person to person uh, through sexual contact. Uh, in that case, it's really the perfect storm. I'm much more concerned about that because of the history of syphilis than I am about climate change because the contact from person to person is faster than climate change-induced changes in the ecology. And you can even get it through tears, uh, if you touch someone else's tears, and, of course, through blood transfusions, which the Canadian blood uh, outfit does not uh, deal with. Um, Is it fatal? Can it be fatal? Lyme. Of course it's fatal. But it can only be fatal if it remains untreated. And, well, what's fatal? We live in an era in which chronic disease can be managed relatively well in the sense of keeping you alive. So a multiple sclerosis patient, of course, eventually dies of some complication associated with that particular disease of the nervous system. And a, and a Lou Gehrig's case, it's, it's a death sentence. Uh, so, yeah, it does kill you eventually, but your, 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 birth, your death certificate is going to say Lou Gehrig's or MS or whatever. It's not going to say Lyme disease. That is the horror of it, that, you, that we now know that the, the worst of the chronic diseases could, in fact, have been caused directly by a, an infection. Alzheimer's is one of them. Uh, that we know that Alzheimer's can also develop regardless of an infection, where people have been carefully in a, in a differential diagnosis been tested for Lyme, but they, they die of Alzheimer's, whatever, you know, finally right. does right. them in. And, the and, go, and God forfend, Helki, that you end up with Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease here in Ontario, because as you, 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 you say, we are incredibly illiterate when it comes to Lyme disease. We don't even know how to test for it properly. Isn't yeah, that correct? It's, it's, it's totally amazing. We recognize it as a disease. It is, you know, known in the system. And OHIP pays for the test that is available. But it has not been possible to date to be able to get it through to the uh, Ontario government uh, and other governments in Canada. They are not the only ones who are uh, illiterate. Um, it has not been able to get through to them that the test that has been uh, used so far is inappropriate. It was developed under very specific circumstances that had to do with surveillance, and we can't get into that because I will use up all your time trying to explain to you why the test was developed originally for completely different purposes in order to, to, to have a surveillance system for the ticks, not for people being sick. And in doing so, the two most important immune reactions, which are called bands, and which are diagnostic of Lyme, were excluded when the test began to be used for people for which it wasn't developed. So as a result, 
when even a perfectly well-meaning and suspicious uh, general practitioner says, well, I've been reading a lot about Lyme, and there has been, you know, all this stuff going on on the radio. I mean, it was on, on Anna Maria Tremonti. It was on CBC. We've had it all sorts of places, and it's been on the nature of things. Maybe we should test you for Lyme. Off he sends you for a Lyme test. You come back clear as a whistle because the two most diagnostic bands, I think it's 31 and 34, there are 34 bands. A band is something that you can visually see when you look at the blood test. Those two immune reactions, which would show the doctor that this patient has Lyme, are not in the testing protocol of the Ontario OHIP-covered test. And this test was, was uh, this antiquated test was developed almost half a century ago, correct? Yes, it was developed by the Karolinska Institute, which in Sweden is associated with the Nobel Prize. The test is an excellent test when it comes to other situations, such as heavy metals. Uh, and it, it, there are a variety of things that the test does extremely well. It's completely inappropriate for infectious disease. And what, what, and what, what is the uh, likelihood that it will give you a false negative? In the 95%, um, there is a range... 95%? False negative, yeah. There is a range of false negatives, which is a technicality that someone who tests blood can explain to you in greater detail, and we'll have to skip it right now. Depending on how you look at the test, you have either a 65%, that's average, a false negative, or a 95% false average. A false negative. So uh, you can very occasionally, as Health Canada has pointed out, also have a false positive. But a false positive is very easily fixed by having a different test on the CD47, which allows you, 57, the CD57, which allows you to figure out uh, whether this was positive or negative, but you're not allowed to use that test. <laughs> you have to use the other one. So, so in other words, if it's a 95% false negative, this, this testing protocol that we have here in Ontario for Lyme disease, the odds are if you have it and you go get tested for it, they're going to tell you you don't have it when you actually do. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, we don't have Lyme in Canada because we make sure that we don't. Once you have that kind of testing protocol and every infectious disease doctor is kept stupid, you are not going to have it. So all of these patients go to the States. That is why we know that we have it. Now, I'll give you a real kicker. I, of course, got it <clears throat> and knew what it was immediately and had myself tested, certainly not in Canada, because I knew right away it was pointless. I'd written the book on it, for goodness sakes. But my granddaughter, who got it in India, she went on a trip to India when she was 17 and 16, and she came back with this. She had all these symptoms, and I was in the process of writing the book and realized what I was looking at. We had her tested, and because the bands that come up from those Lyme ticks that are in the tropics are different, she came up with flying colors as positive with Lyme. And the infectious disease doctor, with three tests, she, they did it three times, and each time she came out with Lyme disease and flying colors. Well, as long as you get infected outside the country in a tropical region, then yeah. like, the likelihood of being tested positive uh, is greater. But if, God forfend, you get uh, yeah. a, a, a deer then, tick then infection in Canada. That the infectious disease doctor looks at three tests and says to her, you don't have Lyme disease. We don't have Lyme disease in Canada. 
To which he said, excuse me, we have Lyme disease in Canada. My grandmother is busy writing a book about it, and I didn't get it in Canada, and that is why you have a positive test. No, he says, I don't believe it. Oh, my Lord. So we had to have it treated outside Canada. Helki Ferry is uh, with us, medical science writer, uh, also runs Cost Publishing <coughs> and a contributor to Vitality Magazine. Now, assuming, let's say, uh, some lucky star shining down on you, you actually, and you have Lyme disease, and you get diagnosed as having Lyme disease, despite our antiquated testing protocol, our doctors don't even know how to properly treat it. Is that correct? Yes. There are some, of course, that do know how to treat it, and there has been some excellent literature published within the last two years by universities in Canada, particularly Sick Children's Hospital, meaning University of Toronto, uh, a public health, uh, the public health of uh, uh, Manitoba, and the University in Manitoba, and uh, the University of Ottawa. And these are infectious disease experts who dealt with unusual cases and reported it in the literature, saying we have to do something about this testing because we went by the symptoms, treated the person, and when the test came out, the test was negative, but we know the person had the disease because, guess what, we cured them. <laughs> and so they reported this in the medical literature. It has no effect. The governments just will not listen. We cannot get the proper tests. If you want the proper tests, you have to go across the United States, where they had to fight for it, too, uh, because it's a very political disease. It is very, very unpleasant for the insurance companies and the workers' compensation uh, types of uh, groups to have to deal with this because once it has progressed to the chronic stage, they're in wheelchairs. Okay, so, uh, you know, if you get multiple sclerosis and then find out that it's Lyme disease, you may be lucky because if you're treated aggressively and rapidly and by a proper protocol, you may get out of that wheelchair. What's the but proper protocol for, 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 uh, proper for protocol treating Lyme disease, Helki? Have been developed by um, various doctors in the world. And you find the vast majority of them in ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And the, many of them are university professors. Uh, one of the centers of this type of research that led to the correct protocols, because there are many protocols, they depend on the patient and it depends on where the, where the infection finally located itself primarily, whether it's in the heart or the brain or whatever. These people are all professors, and most of them are at Yale University. Uh, you have Columbia University. You, some of the very famous ones are there. Um, in fact, Columbia University has a research facility that was started by the former President Bush Jr., uh, who himself got Lyme and then gave it to his wife. And they were treated properly, according to the ILATS protocols, and he loosened up a whole lot of money that was used for this research facility uh, that further develops and refines the testing and the treatment protocols, and it's very sophisticated and it's very good. Can, the, can doctors legally use this protocol here in Canada? Are they permitted, even if they know the, pro the proper treatment, are they allowed by law to, to use it? Theoretically, yes, uh, but of course it's not covered by OHIP. So any doctor who proceeds to do that will risk censure from the College of Physicians and Surgeons because they are suggesting or using or getting the patient involved in therapies that cost a lot of money, which runs counter to the, uh, to the dogma that we must have, um, you know, everything has to be covered by OHIP. I agree with that dogma. <laughs> it would be very nice. But in practice, it's not possible 
And as we know, there are a number of doctors, particularly the famous Dr. Krupp, who were prosecuted. They were actually, the college went after them to um, uh, saying you are treating Lyme disease in ways that are, uh, that, I, that is endangering the patient by unnecessary tests and unnecessary treatments with antibiotics, which, you know, long-term antibiotics can be harmful. Yeah, that is true. That's why there are very careful protocols that are individually tailored. Um, and uh, this is falling below the standard of practice. And if you then point out that, wait a minute, Canada doesn't even have the appropriate tests, and that's why I had to send my patient to, <laughs> to New York, let's say, uh, for the appropriate test, uh, then they say, well, too bad, This, according to what is going on in Ontario and so on. It's, it's so absurd that it's, I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be dead. Um, my granddaughter would probably be dead because she was very, very seriously ill. Um, this, this, it's, it's, that's what happens when medicine gets into the, into the uh, when something takes priority over medicine. such Let, as let me just recap your health if I can. Insurance. Let me recap. The World Health Organization says Lyme disease is one of the leading infectious diseases now in the world. It's sexually transmitted. It's, it can be transmitted through the placenta. It can be transmitted through tears. Yeah. We, we, we are in a situation where we have a Lyme disease epidemic, and yet here in Canada... We say there's no such thing in Canada, so they we don't deny. Say no we deny. Thing. They simply we... say that there isn't much going on. So the letter right. from the Minister of Health, Deb Matthews, uh, in early March of this year to uh, MPP Bob Bailey and MPP uh, Kim Crater, in, uh, and to the public in general, indicated that we are doing everything possible. We have a Lyme Action Task Force, and uh, we tell people how to pre- prevent Lyme by using the appropriate measures when you go on a hike and so on, and uh, go to your GP if you have the, the symptoms. Yeah, yeah good luck. What, what, what uh, MPP Bob Bailey, you just mentioned, conservative MPP from Sarnia Lambton, he presented a petition uh, before uh, the, 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 or to the Liberal government in Queen's Park back in November, December 2011. What yeah, was I think the, that was the, the third petition because there have been several. I was involved with a number of these petitions from that were sponsored by a number of um, um, uh, people, MPPs. The first one was the NDP, uh, France Jelinas, and uh, from Sudbury. And uh, every petition is receives the same reply. What are you talking about? We're doing everything we can do. What was the petition asking for? It was asking for the appropriate test that is internationally known to work, that is has has not got uh, published history of these false negatives that is approved by the FDA and is available from laboratories that are properly licensed according to whatever the rules of the country may be. So in the United States, all 50 states have it's, laboratories. So it's asking, it's asking for the government to update its antiquated testing protocol. What well, else is it asking for? They're not going to do that for? because they say, because the federal government is in charge of that. You know, then they do this federal provincial ping pong. And uh, that is what they did once again with this petition that was endorsed by 3.5 million Ontarians. Hang on, 3.5 million Ontarians signed on to that petition. And signed the a petition asking for the province to update its testing protocol, and the province disease. ignored it. Yes, 3.5 million. And the way they did it was Bob Bailey, MPP from uh, Sarnia, um, he, all the people that worked with it, I was one of them, um, went to the various municipalities whose territory is known through the medical literature 
to have Lyme infestations, in other words, tick infestations. And they put it to the council, to the various councils. So it has even more authority than running around and getting signatures from people who are willing to sign something. You have the entire municipality debate this in their council chambers and then unanimously approve this particular petition to the provincial government. And there were more than 100 municipalities that went through this formal process and signed on with the unanimous vote of all councillors of each municipality. So representing 3.5 million Ontarians, that this is presented to the Provincial Minister of Health, and it's basically, we see no evil, we hear no evil, we speak no evil. There's no problem here, folks. That's right. In other words, the letter from (laughs) Deb Matthews simply says, what are you talking about? We're doing everything necessary. We even have a website, and she cites it. <laughs> well, I feel much better now. They have a I, website. Oh, I feel much better. Get the flu tomorrow. Listen, if people if people are concerned, let's say they 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 suspect they may have chronic Lyme disease, but it's mimicking multiple sclerosis or arthritis or diabetes or chronic fatigue or something else. There's some unknown mystery. Uh, uh, what what should they do? What should their first step be? Um. The. The fact is that if you get the flu three or four times in a row within a couple of months, you better take yourself to New York or Michigan or some such place across the border because there is no way you are going to get help here. Uh, The website of the government is uh, probably well-meant, but it is absurd uh, to tell people to go on a walk by putting their socks on and put them over their pants and to search carefully for any ticks that your dog with whom you have been walking may have and remove them is not the answer. Now, if you are uh, proactive for yourself, you can go to a Lyme literate vet because the veterinary, veterinary uh, medicine of Canada recognizes not only Lyme, but chronic Lyme. And I personally know two vets who treat people, but the files are kept under the name, uh, names of their dogs because they know that the moment the owner has the first symptoms of Lyme, if they get a minimum of three months, not the usual six weeks, but a minimum of three months of doxycycline, which is a particular kind of drug, and if they tolerate that particular drug, if they can manage with that, they will be free of Lyme, and they treat the owners of their dogs. There, there you go, folks. If, uh, here we are living in the, you know, in a G8 country. Yeah. Uh, go, if you get uh, chronic Lyme disease in Canada, this is, you know, one of the worst infectious diseases now that's running rampant around the world. Uh, in Canada, your choices are go to New York or Michigan, get tested, or go to see your vet. Hey, how's that for a first-rate industrial nation? Yeah, but you see, all of this is denied. And the way it is denied is by saying we have tests for Lyme. We recognize Lyme as a real disease. We are monitoring it. We have approximately 100 cases a year, the minister wrote in her letter. 100 cases a year means a minimum of 10,000, because this is basic epidemiology. You have to think of each person, depending on which Lyme take they got, being capable of transmitting it to someone else. And for each person, you have to assume, according to the rules of epidemiology, that there are at least you know, 1,000 more people who don't even know that their flu or whatever may have been caught by a tick. So here she tells us that there are 100 cases new, uh, approximately new cases registered in Ontario. We know 
that because of the tests that are here, the, the Lyme test that is here, those will have to be uh, infections that were caught outside in North America. Because Alki, North Alki, my, my listeners, give them an assignment. What should they do? Should they call their, their MPP? Should they call the Minister of Health's office? What, give them an assignment. The difficulty is that all those people, 3.5 million is impressive, have already done that. They have already gone to their, to their MPPs in one way or another, either directly or by agreeing, with, uh, agreeing to sign on through their municipality. And they are told, make sure you pull your socks up and so on and so forth, and make sure you check your dog when you come home from a walk. I actually don't know. So since I get a lot of calls from people who do have Lyme, now know that they have Lyme because they check it out, my book, which I may uh, publish free of charge, meaning there was no, all the, all the proceeds went to the Lyme Action Group uh, in Ontario here uh, in order to be able to make more noise about this. And that book uh, is Ending Denial? Yeah, Ending Denial, the Public Health Disaster, in a Canadian public health disaster. So we sell them that book at cost price, and uh, that way a little bit of money comes in, like, you know, for, for the Lyme Action Group. And then they know where they can go. First of all, they have to figure out where to go to get the test. That costs about $400, and it's a test called Igenics, and that is a very, very reliable test. Uh, then they can go and find themselves a, do- a doctor across the border, or they can find out through the Lyme Action Group or can Lyme, C-A-N Lyme, the national group, if there are any doctors somewhere within Canada, within Canada's borders, who will treat it. Very, very okay. few, but there are that's, some. That's can Lyme, C-A-N Lyme? Yeah. yeah. Just go on the Internet, put into Google. Um, right. But there are very few doctors, but they will tell you which doctors you can work with across the border. Then the next complication is, if you have Lyme, you can assume that other members in your family have it if you're sexually active. There's no question about it. It's sexually transmissible, and that's, that's all there is to it. Uh, it's just a fact. Uh, you may have transmitted it to your baby. I know of one doctor who's currently treating a family. Father has it, gave it to the mother. Mother passed it through the placenta to one of their kids, and simply through physical contact, and mothers and babies, will, there will be spit or tears or whatever. Uh, the whole family has it, and they're all being treated all at the same time. So... You can go across the border, you can go onto the Internet and put ILADS into Google, I-L-A-D-S, International Alignment Associated Diseases Society. They will help you find a doctor, and you have to pay for it yourself. You will most likely get cured, but this is what you have to do. Now, to right, change Alki, the listen, government's uh, attitude and tell the federal government to change their testing protocols so that the Ontario and other provinces, uh, Ontario government and other provinces can proceed to educate their doctors that's another matter. How are you going to do that? Yeah, but good luck with that. Yeah, well, as in many cases, as in many, many cases, the government is not here to help. Uh, we're on our own, folks, so you've got to get proactive. Take matters into your own hands. And again, uh, can Lyme, Google that, can, C-A-N, Lyme, L-Y-M-E, or ILADS, I-L-A-D-S. Just Google those, and um, hopefully... You'll be on your, I mean, I uh, on your way to, uh, to getting yourself some help because it's not going to be found here, apparently. I, I tell people all the time, go to the bank, get a mortgage or a bank loan for about 20000 bucks, and get treated now before you're in the wheelchair, which is when OHIP takes over, which is when they give you everything you need. Yeah. But if you want to be cured, oh boy, you've got to get very proactive. Eventually, this absurdity will hit. But for the time being, if you want to wait till the government changes... 
till the government attitude changes, till Health Canada changes, or you'll be dead long ago. That's the truth. Halky, thank you so much for this. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Halka, Halka Ferry is a physical anthropologist, a medical science writer, whose articles on the political aspects of medicine are featured regularly in Canada and the U.S. in Vitality Magazine. She also runs Koss Publishing, Inc., a publishing company that specializes in books on the politics of medicine. And her book, again, is Ending Denial, The Lyme Disease Epidemic, a Canadian Public Health Disaster. Uh, We'll talk about another matter, EVPs, with a man who is a real innovator in this field, uh, we're talking electronic, or sorry, electric voice phenomena, or perhaps the voices of the dearly departed. When the conspiracy show continues, back on the other side, stay with us. Question everything. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hello, radio friends. You know, we've got something in common tonight. We're probably both in our pajamas (laughs) Uh, doing the show live from uh, Old Thorn Hill. In my uh, terry cloth bathrobe. Uh, uh, yes, granted, too much information, uh, but uh, feeling a little under the weather, and uh, so I'm going to uh, do the uh, the program here, and then drag myself up the stairs to bed, and uh, we'll see what uh, next week brings. But I'll tell you what next week brings. Actually, I'll be doing the show live from Los Angeles. I'm going to uh, meet up with an old uh, a friend, radio friend, Adam Go Rightly. Uh, will be with us on the program next week. Uh, his uh, his new book is called Happy Trails to High Weirdness. It's a uh, a conspiracist's uh, sort of tour guide. And uh, Adam is, um, well, uh, he describes himself as a crackpot historian and a 23rd degree discordian. Not exactly sure what that means, but uh, I know one thing. Adam uh, can tell a story and... Uh, uh, looking forward to meeting up with him next week. So again, The Conspiracy Show coming to you live from Los Angeles, uh, Sunday, May the 6th. Also on the program that night will be a Grant Jeffrey. Uh, a Grant uh, is an international uh, best-selling author, resides not too far from here, just down in uh, Mississauga. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, the shadow government and how this secret... Uh, a global elite are using surveillance against you. Grant Jeffrey, along with Adam Gorightly, the crackpot historian, live from Los Angeles next week. All right, now, on to, uh, this is a, an area that I find fascinating. I don't know whether you believe that it's possible to communicate with the dead, uh, but um, if you're familiar with electronic voice phenomena, I think some of them, provide some pretty interesting evidence that consciousness may in fact survive physical death. However, there is even among EVP researchers considerable discussion, debate, skeptical debate about what EVPs are. Are they in fact these uh, these uh, discarnate disembodied voices? Are they bodies of the dead? Are they uh, aliens? Are they... Who knows, really? I mean, 
It's pretty much wide open. So we're going to discuss the science behind EVPs. Joining me now is a paranormal researcher who studies electronic voice phenomena. And uh, he's a bit of a techie as well. He's uh, an, a real innovator in developing new technology for recording EVPs. And he is also with para-researchers of Ontario, John Mitzi. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well, thank you. I had the pleasure of meeting you up in your, uh, I'm going to call it your laboratory, because it, it looks just like a laboratory. You've got uh, all sorts of electronic gadgets and so forth uh, up in Innisfil. How long have you been uh, actually you know, working and researching on EVPs? Well, I'm, I guess around 10 years now. Yeah, about 10 years. Uh, when I joined uh, para-researchers, uh, SICAN, um, it just, I didn't really know what aspect of, uh, of paranormal research I wanted to get into, but I tried different things and I wasn't getting any results. And then I tried recording EVP and lo and behold, I started getting results. So it was the only thing that I could really find uh, physical evidence on tape. I had physical evidence. So I continued with it and continued to study because it seemed like the most promising uh, aspect of paranormal investigation. And, and it's interesting in, in talking with you because you don't have any sort of assumptions as to what EVPs are, aside from they appear to be, you know, these disembodied, discarnate voices, but you don't come down on one side or the other saying, well, yes, they're definitely the voices of the dead or they're aliens or anything else, right? Oh, no. I mean, they're, boy, these things could be anything. I mean, we just don't know what they are. I, I've been investigating for 10 years. And I haven't. I still haven't got an explanation as to what I'm listening to. I I, I see that some of the evidence points towards the the dead person hypothesis, where I get some some uh, evidence that would suggest um, place memory or history of a certain uh, place that I've been investigating. But I mean that doesn't necessarily mean it's ghosts. EVPs are not proof of ghosts. They're proof of something. There's something there. Uh, there's something paranormal occurring where we're getting voices being recorded that shouldn't be there in the conversation. But I have no idea as to what it is. And I, you know, this is a, a goal um, that everybody should be striving for, I think. And, and you approach it in a rather scientific uh, way. I mean, you, you take great pains to uh, sort of control certain variables and so forth. Let's discuss that. When you go out onto an investigation into a haunted location, and maybe we can we can talk about some of your investigations late later. Uh, but when you go into a room or an area where there have been purported, uh, you know, hauntings, what sort of things do you? What sort of variables do you check to eliminate other things that might explain these EVPs? Well, I know that some people like to use what they call a Faraday cage, which is uh, basically a cage made of metal. Um, and it, it, it would remove like radio, keep radio signals from being uh, interfering with your, with your recordings. Um, I know that other people have tried all kinds of different things. Um, but realistically even when you hear the evps you can pretty well rule out uh radio signals because they don't address you directly 
using your name. And they, like, radio signals don't do that. And, and they're actually holding conversations with you. Plus, the, um, the uh, evidence that I've been gathering um, seems to fit uh, the same model as a, a researcher in England. Uh, his name is Dr. Barry Colvin. And um, he was recently published in the Society for Physical Research, which showed that uh, his poltergeist sounds that he's been, he's been collecting for quite a number of years, way into the 70s, including the Enfield poltergeist uh, case, um, they all show uh, when it's a, a paranormal wrapping, it shows a different waveform. And the recordings that I've been getting have been fitting that same waveform. Uh, and Dr. Colvin and I have spoken about it. And uh, I'm, I'm right now investigating this and gathering evidence to, make, to show that uh, the voices that are being recorded are paranormal in nature. They're not, they're not recorded naturally. And, and, and further, that they are actual mechanical acoustic waves. Well, that's the other thing is, is uh, I've never been of the mindset that voices are being imprinted on tape or, you know, that, uh, that they're somehow being plucked out of white noise. Now, white noise being all, all frequencies mashed together gives you white noise. And a lot of people say that you can pluck the frequency, that paranormal activity can pluck the frequencies that they need to use out of white noise. Um, I think that if I had passed on, even with my limited knowledge of electronics, I, I would never be able to figure out how I could physically pull out the frequencies I needed to create a sound. And I don't know if I would know how to manipulate magnetic, um, magnetic electrons on a tape, if it were a tape, or how to tell a digital tape recorder the number of ones and zeros it needs to record. The, 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 the easiest hypothesis is that they are mechanical sounds being uh, transferred through a sensing device like a microphone um, in the standard way. And um, I think it might have a bit more to do with the equipment. If you were using a cheaper microphone, like a pencil mic from a from a cassette recorder, um, its its range of sensing uh, may may not be able to catch where the sound is occurring, or it may it may catch it so that where the sound is occurring is very low. Um, and this is why I developed some equipment. Um, that will uh, boost the sounds from uh, a long distance away. It's basically a, a modified parabolic microphone. Um, and of course, I have to say uh, for my group that it's, it's affectionately known within our circles as the salad bowl. So... Um, it yeah, worked. I got to I got to see that it is it, it is in fact a, a salad bowl, or it looks like one of the stainless steel mixing bowls we use here around the Sarat household. Uh, let me just remind uh, listeners: John Mitzi is with us, investigator, technical spe specialist with Para Researchers of Para Researchers of Ontario, and we're discussing sort of the science behind EVPs, electronic voice phenomena, these discarnate, disembodied, disembodied voices that have been captured on audio recording 
uh, devices. Uh, question, comments. Get in on the conversation. Would love to love to have your discarnate, disembodied voice coming at us. Although we can explain where yours is coming from at four one six three six zero zero seven forty here in the uh, the Greater Toronto area. Again, four one six three six zero zero seven forty and toll free from just about anywhere. Toronto to Thunder Bay to uh, the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, one 740 And uh, John, we'll uh, take a time out, sit tight, we'll uh, come back and we'll discuss um, some of your interesting theories as to why often EVPs come across in sort of a garbled, muffled uh, manner. We'll, we'll get to that uh, theory, which is an interesting one. Uh, John Mitzi, again, our guest, a real innovator in this area, not only in terms of his theories behind EVPs, but also in his, uh, his work in, in, in creating new equipment to capture uh, these, uh, these fascinating uh, EVPs. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. All one word, Richard, and let me spell the last name, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. And also, of course, uh, the website's theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, there you can uh, learn all about the uh, the TV series, and uh, you can also click on there, from there, and get to the radio website, which is richardserrett.com. All right, that's how you can... Uh, uh, follow me, stalk me, or what have you. Uh, John Mitzi is with us from Para Researchers Ontario. And uh, uh, John, uh, you, you were mentioning this parabolic microphone uh, that uh, that you created. It, it, tell me about the first time you took that that piece of equipment on an investigation, and and uh, and what happened. Well, that's quite interesting, actually. Um, I didn't, you know, I had to try it at home first to see if it was going to work. Uh, before I went to take it on an investigation. So in actuality, the first time I tried it uh, was in my backyard with my family around a campfire. And um, I, got, I started getting EVPs right away from the very first time. It was absolutely incredible. I couldn't believe it, uh, the, how well it worked. And it seems to really work well at getting EVPs outdoors. But then I've heard this from many investigators before who are also researching EVP, that in the outdoors, you tend to gather more of them. And I, I also, I actually tend to agree with that because, um, like I said, on the first night when I had this thing out by the fire, uh, I had many, I had, I'd gotten many EVPs. Um, but was, when, when, you, when you're outside, though, there are more variables for which to control for. So it's, it, I, I'm thinking it might be, what maybe a little harder to sort of to to verify uh i don't know you tell me I, i'm just thinking you know when you're outdoors and it's dark and you can't see let's say 50 feet in front of you uh you don't know maybe if there's you know someone across the fence your neighbor who's muttering or or so and so forth okay that i could see that but but uh, i live in a secluded area and uh, there there wasn't there isn't a lot of people around me and 
I don't know if they could have heard the conversation. You see, I, I, unfortunately, I haven't, I can't send you the copy right now. But um, the very first one, like I asked a question, is there anybody here that used to live here before? And the answer I got was nobody. And then, quite strangely, my wife was, and this is the first time I heard this, or had this happen to me, and, uh, and it led me to another conclusion that actually that uh, whatever EVPs are, that they can actually uh, tell what you're going to say before you say it or as you're saying it, um, because it's quite distinct where my wife, my son was, was um, breaking wood, uh, cutting wood for the fire, and um, he was breaking it over his knee. And my wife said, uh, my wife said, um, let me, got to remember this now. Oh, yeah. She said, um, um, man of steel. And then she laughed a little bit, like she giggled because she was making a joke. Right, right. But, but in the background, while she said man of steel and exactly at the same time, um, you hear a male voice in a whisper go, man of steel, right? Wow. And, yeah, when she giggles, you can actually hear him say, right, at the same time she giggles. So there was no way that somebody would have known what she was saying at the same time she was saying it. So it, there's no possible way that it could have been anybody listening in on the conversation and saying something. And, now, um, sorry, yeah. John, I was just going to say, you know, being in your, in your basement, in your, in your workshop there, and, and uh, I mean, you have, do you have a background in electronics? Uh, actually, I do. I have a background in electronics. I start, I've always been interested in electronics um, since the time of like five years old. And I've always had my own little shops, uh, a little shop set up in the garage or in the basement or somewhere. And then um, later on in my years, I, I took electronics um, at George Brown College and I, I graduated um, as a with a technologist degree in digital electronics. And at the age of 16, I was in um, audio electronics. So I never had any formal training in audio, actually. But, but uh, basic electronics is all the same. Um, but, yeah, I've been involved with electronics for a long time. Mixers, amplifiers, sure. Um, and, and there's nothing internal, knowing what you do about electronics, there's nothing internal in a, uh, uh, well, you know, in a digital recorder. There's no mechanism. There's no motor. Um, no. that, that could produce, you know, I'm, I'm look, I guess I'm talking about some sort of an artifact within the machine itself that might be confused for an EVP. Well, the only thing that it could be is in the power supply of whatever unit that you have or in the receiving unit, um, you could have a defect where it would pick up radio signals. Um, but if it was to be picking up radio, like nowadays, they've eliminated most of that too with improvements in in, uh, in the components and in the design of each electronic unit. But if that were true, that would be fine, and I would, I would you know, understand that. But I'm not getting, like, uh, rock music. I'm not getting talk radio. Um, they, are addressing, they are addressing the people that they're talking to by their name. And they are in conversation and almost reading. I've got to say it again. It's almost like they're reading their mind. Um, it, if you, that one that I sent you with about Todd, 
about um, the uh, the um, Lions the Lions Hall. Um, yes. With Robin, I mean, it was reading her mind. I didn't even know, and and like it was incredible that that she could read that, or yeah, whoever or whatever it was. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll probably get to that one later. But let me let me uh, let me just look at the time here and see if we owe uh, our good friend back in the station, David, a break. I think we're okay for a couple of minutes. So let me get to this one if I can. And and David Gaskin, listening in, um, if you could cue up this one, it's it's um, you've labeled it Miss Full. Right, uh, 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 John. This first before we play it, just give us the backstory behind this EVP that you captured. I guess somewhere in Mississauga. Yeah, this one was really, really interesting, and it bothered me for weeks afterward because I was so emotionally wrought with it. Um, because uh, I had to do something that I, I, I felt very bad doing was was uh, ab- abandoning this one, whatever this voice was. But, um, uh, so what happened was, is there was two of us, um, we were doing a pr- an investigation in Mississauga at a private residence. And the witnesses had, had uh, testified that uh, they had, were seeing a little girl um, in, in the house. So we were doing a, uh, we were doing an investigation in the basement, uh, gathering EVPs. I had just developed uh, a new piece of equipment. Again, um, this was the first time that I had used this piece of equipment. And uh, uh, I was wondering how well it was going to work. And we were right beside a cold room. And we had both been discussing about what would be in that cold room. And boy, it's, I bet it's damp, dark in there. And all of a sudden, this little girl started having a conversation with us. And there was a couple of things that made this different. One, again, was because this was this new piece of equipment that I've developed, um, which is, uh, I, I call it the horseshoe mic. Um, and Oh, that's the one you had placed around my neck to, to yeah. demonstrate, yes. Yeah, that was actually, the, that's the second prototype. Uh, the, the first prototype, which was close to it, uh, was the one that picked up this this particular little girl talking, and it was strange because as she, okay, and the other thing that was crazy about it was, and I have to confirm this with the American EVP Association, who says they've got evidence in the same way where they can gather two, three, maybe four EVPs coming through at the same time, and I can confirm that because that's starting to happen more often now because of the equipment that I'm using. It's more sensitive. And so it's gathering more EVPs at the same time. And uh, I, it all has to do with that, that paranormal bubble, which we can talk about later. We shall. But, uh, but basically this girl, little girl was talking to us, uh, saying it was all right to investigate the cold room. She said hello. Um, and at the very beginning, there was another EVP in a man's voice that said, they lock her behind the wall. And, and, and then in her conversation later, she says, I want my water. And then, and then you can hear her as she's going along. She's starting to get frustrated and realizing that we can't hear what she's saying until the very end where she tells us, uh, you know, don't go. And it was just heart-wrenching because I couldn't go back on that investigation because it was their last night in that house. And, uh, oh, so- the, the owners were selling it. 
Yeah, well, they were moving from there. Okay. Yeah. And not because of the paranormal activity, uh, for a different reason, but they were com they were comfortable with what what was there. So this this little girl, I guess we'll call her, uh, was at some point perhaps locked in the cold room, and knew you were there. Was trying to communicate with you. So. Let's why don't we why don't we uh, why don't we play this uh, this clip uh, David Gaskin back in studio. Let's have a listen. We may re I may get you to replay it again, but uh, let's let's uh, see, hear what let's listen and see what we can hear. still behind me. I still feel it coming from the rim. That's where it's hiding. It's coming out here. You could probably... I think mm. there's some more to that. There is more to that? Yes. Oh, did we, uh, David Gaskin, did you, um, did we, do we lose some of that? Oh, okay. I'm not sure what happened there. He says we got it all. But... During, during the transmissions of me sending it to you then, Something's gone wrong because it's the uh, not the right one. It's missing some parts of it. Oh man, if you had to hear it. Okay, but what what um, what this little girl says is um, well, oh first, no, hello. Yeah, you say oh no, because you, she hears the man's voice that says they lock her behind the wall, and then you hear her say oh no like that, and then um, uh, we start talking about the cold room. And then she says, she says, oh, look, it's all right. And then she says, uh, and then we started talking a bit more. And she says, hello. And uh, I like, want my water. I want my water. And then she says, hello again. And then she says, and then she says, don't go. And but when she says the last don't go, you can hear her straining and you can hear her voice echoing as if she was yelling to try to get our attention. Because oh, at that point, I was turning around to go up the stairs. And you can hear me. I said, I can't take this anymore because I was feeling something. And you heard in my conversation, it felt like there was something there. Uh, and Yes, I remember hearing that uh, when you played it for me uh, up at your place and the desperation in this child's voice. Uh, you know, she's realized maybe her, her, her one chance to com connect with somebody and there you're leaving now, and and imagine being locked in a room, and you think someone is listening to you. Here's your chance to get out, and then all of a sudden you hear them leaving, going up the stairs, and you that plaintive cry, "Don't go!" Right. My word. John Mitzi is with us from Para Researchers Ontario, and uh, quite an innovator in the field of uh, EVPs. You mentioned this horseshoe um, microphone. It's kind of a, a flexible microphone. You place you can place around your neck, and it's got various little mic uh, inputs. Now, what, what was the rationale uh, behind that? That in case the EV or in case this discarnate voice is coming from behind or they're, right, they're standing right next to you? What, 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 why did you design it that way? Well, that started out um, at my very, very first EVP session ever, uh, about 
oh, I would say six, seven years ago now, maybe longer. Um, I was in a, in a cemetery and I, I have to put a disclaimer by a cemetery because usually um, we're, I'm not of the belief that, that a spirit would stay in a cemetery. It would rather be where, where it used to live. However, uh, I was still kind of fresh and new and still learning about investigations. So eh, we said, let's make it interesting. It was close to Halloween, I guess. And uh, it doesn't make it right, but it, it, it was like I wanted a little bit of the ambiance. So we went out to this cemetery and we, we, we were only there about 20 minutes. And we had uh, just cheap Radio Shack tape recorders, um, tape recorders we'd got, I'd gotten from garage sales and things like that. Didn't want to put a lot of money into it. Still don't. Um, and uh, we went out there and we did a 20-minute session. And when we got back, um, we played it back. And it was amazing. We, we just, 20 minutes, we must have got 20, 20 or 30 EVPs out of it. And uh, we, did, we didn't even know we were getting EVPs until my daughter pointed them out. But um, we went back uh, several times to this place, and uh, um, we found, uh, I started doing experimentation with tape recorders, because I, I wanted to see whether I could position, I could find the position of where the voices were coming from. So I put one tape recorder on the ground, I set one um, with my son, and one with myself, and one with my wife, and we were about 10 feet apart. And um, we were asking questions, and we, you can hear the conversation across all three of us at, the, at, at, you know, pretty well at the same levels, but the voice only came through on my tape recorder. So then I started to realize that, that it was positional, that we could actually position these things. And I wanted to test the hypothesis that maybe they were actually right beside you trying to speak to you. So I came up with this idea of, and that's when I came up with this idea of using uh, a horseshoe type uh, microphone. It's actually um, just a, a horseshoe bendable um, rod that you can put around your neck and um, you add six six uh, microphones to it and I've got it going into a mixer with some custom attenuation. Um, I made it a very high gain mixer for those of you that want to try. Um, those of you that know electronics and want to try, it's a high gain mixer. And then um, I just ran it through to a tape recorder in stereo and in mono where, you know, where it was needed and, and a set of headphones, but uh, balanced headphones. And Boy, since I've built it, it's been 100% effective, um, but I'm not finished with the testing yet. So I, I, I won't say that the device is perfect. Uh, I do know, though, that it has not failed to pick up an EVP in the testing so far. All right. Uh, why don't we take a time out? When we come back, um, there was another investigation. Can I mention the, the, the location? The, um, you're, you're calling the, uh, the EVPs that you sent me, uh, bar, yes. bar 22. Can I mention the, the location? Yes, you can. yes, that's a, that's not a private, uh, that's not a private investigation. It was done at the Bala Inn. The, no, no, also known as the Keys to Bala? Yeah, up there at the Key to Bala. And the, it's actually at the Bala, Bala Inn by the falls there. 
Ah, not the not the key to Bala, but the no. the Bala Inn. Bala Inn by the Falls. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to play a couple of uh, EVPs uh, that were uh, recorded at that location. John Mitzi is uh, my guest from Para Researchers Ontario. As we discuss uh, EVPs again, get in on the conversation. Perhaps you've captured an EVP of your own, or you have a theory as to what they might be. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty in the Greater Toronto Region and. Toll free from just about anywhere, 1 866 744 740. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. John Mitzi is with us from Para Researchers Ontario. And um, let's set up a, a David Gaskin back in studio. Let's hear the, uh, the EVP that I believe is marked Bar Children 7-1. Who turned on the tap? Okay, so do you want some background on that? Yes, one? I wasn't sure if that was the end of it. Yes, okay, I yes, definitely that heard is a, the end of it. I okay, um, I heard I heard someone say who turned on the tap, which I presumably is one of the investigators, and yes, then I heard I heard a scream. That's what I heard. Exactly. We during the Balin investigation, we got a lot of EVPs that came across as screaming. Um, they're they're all through the whole investigation that that evening. The person who said who turned on the tap was Rob Strachan, and he's a very good friend and another investigator um, with uh, SICAN and para-researchers. He he asked this question, who turned on the taps? Because there were eyewitness testimony that the taps were always going on in the bar area. And so that sounds like a scream, but if you analyze it, you can almost hear a girl, a little girl saying, I don't know. So we assumed that this was I don't know. Now, if you listen to number two, seven, two, you'll see the second, a second little girl saying something. So I'm not going to tell you what it is. Let's All right. You can make it out. All right. Let's fire that one off, David. Mm. Can you play that no, again? I, yeah, let's play it again if we can, David. Okay, it's me here. I want to know who turned on the tap. That was number three. I'm not getting yeah, that was number three. That's okay. I'm not getting any readings at all. Okay, can we play number two again, David? It was hard to make out, and I want to let everybody know that I apologize, but sometimes the EVP sounds differently over different equipment. So the best way for you to hear an EVP is with a set of headphones, but sometimes it doesn't come out that clear. But what we got was in the first one, it was a scream, and when we hear it here, you can hear, you can hear, uh, uh, now I don't know, and then on the second one, you should have heard, 
and you actually hear a little bit of laughing. Well, yes, just yes. before that laughing, you hear the, the little girl and she says, it, um, I did it. And then you hear a little giggle. And then and then that was the then you hear some noise after that. So uh, they were acknowledging the fact that they were playing with the taps. All right, let's let's fire off number three then. Right. Okay, it's me here. I want to know who turned on the tap. I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting any readings at all. Now, that's interesting. The investigator there is saying, I'm not getting anything. In other words, he didn't hear that with a naked ear. Exactly. That's exactly why I wanted to show that. And that screaming continued on through the night in different areas. We were getting screaming all through that night. And yet he did not hear that on, at the time. Um, that's why I kind of wanted to play that for you. Well, the, see, that's what I don't understand. You, because you said that your theory is that these are not these EVPs are not being imprinted directly onto the tape because oftentimes we'll hear uh, uh, paranormal researchers say, you know, I had the recorder on, I didn't see the VU meter move, I didn't see, I didn't hear anything. It wasn't until I got home and I played it that I heard it, which lends, or which, which leads some to suspect, okay, these in many cases are not heard by the, uh, they, you know, the, the human ear. They are being directly imprinted onto you know, the, the magnetic tape or, or what have you. But, but you say, no, it's not likely because, you know, think about it. Unless you have very sophisticated electronics uh, experience, you're not going to be able to uh, manipulate the, the, uh, the iron oxide uh, on a magnetic tape or manipulate the ones and zeros on a digital tape. But, but if you can't, why didn't he hear that? I, I think there are, uh, the most common reason would be that he wasn't using my equipment. These were ones that Rob Strachan, Strachan actually caught, and he was using uh, like a pencil microphone. Um, now, again, uh, some of the limitations of a pencil microphone are that it's only going it's, it's gonna to lose its, its sensitivity uh, the farther away you get from the sound. So... Um, you may not, when you get it back, you may not get it right away. Plus, you may not hear it because the decibels will be really low. We've enhanced these EVPs by adding a 10 decibel boost. And we've also slowed them down and, and sped them up, depending on what the conversation was to bring these out into the forefront. But a lot of times, all you would hear in that scream is, is you would hear like a, eh, like that. And then, like, you wouldn't even pay attention to it. You would never think that was an EVP. You would just think that it was just a, 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 like there were people talking in the background. It could easily have been mistaken for any of those people talking in the background had we not enhanced it. Um, and had, the, had we not realized the fact that there was actually screaming through the whole thing. It wasn't the first time. But again, you could easily miss it because of the low decibels. And I believe it's because it's happening far away from the microphone. And uh, this is something, obviously, with your innovations that you're trying to rectify, so that you're, you're working towards, you know, uh, being able to retrieve, I guess what they call in the, uh, in the, in the field, grade A EVPs. Yes. Uh, class A, yep. There's class, class A. A, there's class B, and there's class C, and I have examples of all three. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to get class A's whenever I can, and I've caught a few, 
Um, they're few and far between, but I have caught. Now, again, um, I, I would like to discuss the, the paranormal bubble theory. To help yeah, I, I, I want to definitely, I want to do that, and we have time for that. But before we get to that, John, one of the things that, that the skeptics will say is there is an element of suggestibility. Uh, when you hear an EVP, often they're presented, let's say, on a, on a television show or uh, even online. They'll have the EVP, and then maybe in brackets, they'll actually have in text underneath what the EVP is purported to be saying. So there is that suggestibility. Often, you, you, once you see it, then, then you can hear it. In other words, once it's suggested to you what the EVP is saying, then your mind is able to, I don't know, extrapolate, interpolate, whatever it's doing, and, and, and then you can hear it. And then you can't help but not hear it. Okay. How do you, how, what's the, I guess, in other words, what's the proper way to present and, and listen to an EVP? Well, I would think that the best way um, is to use a set of headphones. Like I said, I've, I've seen stuff, I've heard stuff that comes perfectly clear over my, my equipment, but I'm running 400 watts. So there's a lot of, a lot of amplification there. Then I go and I, and I have to play it for somebody on a set of computer speakers or on a portable device. And, and because the amplification isn't there, it can't be heard clearly. Now, like I said, some of them can be heard clearly, um, but I don't know if you've got, uh, there's one here. No, I guess my, here's my question, John, is, in other words, when you're playing an EVP for someone, how do you present it to them? Do you, do you say to them, do you hear this person saying this, or do you say, have a listen, and what do you hear? Oh, okay, well, yeah, no, I actually tell them to listen first. And I give them a set of what I think it said, um, like separately, that they can go to and check. But definitely I'll let them hear the EVP first to see what they can understand out of it, to see if they actually do hear something. And I do make suggestions as to listening to uh, earphones and things like that. Right. But, but you know, it's the strangest thing. I've, uh, again, you know, I've heard where I've played an EVP and 10, 20 feet away my wife can understand what it's saying and I can't and I'm right up against the speaker it's it just seems like there's something to it um that's spatial the presence is different um and it, it makes it hard to understand sometimes is there is there like a, a protocol that that EVP researchers do you sit around for example maybe the investigators on a particular a case sit down and, and review them and listen and then do you I mean, how do you sort of arrive at an agreement as to what, let's assume it's not a class A, and so that's somewhat muffled, and you're going to explain why that might be, why it's muffled or garbled, but how do you arrive at a consensus in terms of what the EVP was saying? Well, boy, we got we to gotta play it back. We have to enhance it sometimes. Sometimes we don't have to enhance them at all. It's quite obvious, but I know that Rob Strachan and I have spent days going through... EVPs playing them back, like playing them back and playing them back and arguing back and forth and saying, no, it's saying this and no, it's saying this. And then finally, um, you know, we've heard it so many times that it's obvious what, what is being said. Um, and like I said, sometimes they don't require enhancement and sometimes it's pretty obvious it's what is being said. 
So, All right. Okay, sit tight. We'll uh, we'll take a time out. When we come back, uh, John, I want you to relate uh, your theory as to why EVPs sound the way they do. And I think I don't think this information uh, has been has been shared with anyone uh, in a public forum before. This is it was the first time I ever heard this, and I, I find it fascinating. It has to do with I guess what we could call loosely a paranormal atmosphere. John Mitzi is with Para Researchers Ontario. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Don't go away. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at one 866 740 Four seven forty. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. And the, um, you know, this is something I've neglected to mention. The, the podcast uh, version of The Conspiracy Show uh, is available for free on iTunes. Now, for years, of course, I had a, um, uh, a, uh, a show archives that was hosted on my, on my website. And some of the older shows are still there. Uh, but at a certain point, it just become became a little unmanageable. So uh, now our uh, the good friends here at uh, AM740 Zoom Radio will have actually uh, uh, posted all of the previous shows to uh, iTunes, and they're they're pretty good about uh, keeping them up to date. Uh, they might be you know a week behind here or there, but uh, if you go to iTunes and uh, do a search for the Conspiracy Show, and then you can subscribe to that podcast and have it uh, deposited on your. Uh, your uh, your desktop um, every week and it's amazing I get emails from all over the world I had an email the other day from someone in Australia who was delivering the mail in the outback by moped and they listened to the conspiracy show podcast and another from an artist in New York who's got it uh, who's got the podcast blaring in his uh, his New York loft somewhere in Manhattan as he's uh, filling his uh, canvas with uh, amazing uh, paint uh, colors and so forth. So uh, that's where you can find the podcast. And uh, I always uh, am delighted to find uh, new messages in my inbox uh, from people all over the world listening uh, to The Conspiracy Show via the podcast. So again, go to iTunes and subscribe. All right, John Mitzi is with us from Para Researchers Ontario. Now, John, before we get to your... Um, your your paranormal atmosphere theory. Let's grab a couple of calls and uh, let's begin with Gail from Toronto. Good evening. Good morning, Gail. How are hi, you? Hi, Richard. Hello, John. Hello. Um, the, uh, a strange thing. My my son works for Fort oh, Fort York, and one time they had uh, somebody coming going through with uh, a tape recorder. I think they were. Uh, Fort York's reputed to be haunted, I believe. Yes, it is. And uh, what what happened, they were all talking, and um, they played it back, and they heard bagpipes. And uh, so they were thinking, well, maybe it came from the Fort York armories, but it, it couldn't have 
gone through the, the walls like that. So they, so we were talking about it, and I said, well, it could have been one of these EVPs, you know. So I was wondering if you've ever heard music coming, you know. Like, Excellent question. And what, what they wanted to know, too, was the way the bagpipes were played. Could it have been the way they used to play them in the 1800s? They, I didn't find that out yet. But it was fascinating, it is fascinating. Yeah, it's true, John. We often, because we, we, we use the term EVPs, we assume that they're always uh, some discarnate, disembodied human voice. Uh, but uh, sometimes it, it could be music or it could be uh, a rapping, as you indicated earlier. But what of what Fort York? Well, uh, Fort York is, is reputed to have some hauntings there. And it's been investigated by some of the TV personality groups. Um, and... It was interesting what uh, what the was it Gail? Yes. Yes. It was interesting what Gail said. She said some people were having a conversation, and I actually uh, feel that during a conversation, you're more easy. It's more easier to catch an EVP, really, because I I'm of because of the evidence. I'm of the mind. Uh, I'm sharing this hypothesis that most of them want to be heard, but don't want to be heard. Uh, they're kind of shy. So an EVP would, uh, would much rather uh, come out during a normal conversation than not. And um, I wouldn't be surprised to have music playing um, as an EVP. Um, however, I would have looked for natural causation first. Um, the other thing is, though, that I have had a lot of, I've never actually captured music as an EVP, <laughs> um, but uh, I have captured singing. If you, actually, if you look at number, um, oh, what was that one? 18, yes. Oh, uh, number 20. Um, was that in the first batch that you sent no, me or the, the second, second? In the second batch. If you look at number 20, um, I'll give you a second to pull that up. And Gail, if you want to hear, listen to this. It's really kind of cool. We were, uh, again, investiga investigating at the Bala Inn, and my wife heard singing behind the bar. So I, I set up a tape recorder, and, uh, and then... We have, we have that now. Do you want to hear it? Sure. Well, let me set it up. I set okay, up a okay. tape recorder and, uh, as, to see if I could capture any more singing. And then I came back to, to uh, put it away later on at the end of the evening. And then this is what I caught. So, Gail, listen carefully. You're going to hear something that's pretty cool. Go ahead. Closed circuit TV. And just like security cameras. Like just, there's somebody. Uh, wrong one. Number 20 has a 20 on it. Okay, we'll give David a few minutes to, to, to find that one. Yeah. Uh, but let, let's, uh, let's grab another call here. This one is from uh, Carrie. Carrie, welcome to The Conspiracy Hi. Show. I'm going to turn my radio down. Thank you, Carrie, for that. Oh, appreciate that's it. so cool. Um, I really appreciate you, um, your guests explaining how it's difficult to hear them through different receptors because I'm calling from Delhi. You're calling from Delhi, okay. Yeah, so my radio is a little bit weak. Um, I love it. I, I, I love your show, and um, I've been working a lot, so I don't really have a question. I just really have a 
it's more of a statement, actually. Regarding EVPs, or? This is keep up the good work, because I'm very, I'm actually enthralled at tonight's show. Well, thank you. I, All right, Carrie, I, appreciate I the... love it. Appreciate the call from Delhi. Okay, thank you. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, and David will let us know when he's located. Oh, he. Okay, we we do have that one. Let's try it. Let's listen to number twenty here. What if it was black? So this one isn't the one, but I'll tell you that this one is quite interesting too, where it shows how the EV voices can be quite sentient. And, what happened uh, there? Yeah, I wasn't able to, because I guess I was listening for the singing, so I wasn't able yeah, to hear. Sorry, it was the wrong one, but if you listen at the end, and if, if your producer wants to play it again, you'll hear at the end, you'll hear uh, in a whisper. And uh, to give you a little bit of background on that, we were at the cemetery. We left the car running. And the hockey game was on. And so we you can hear us moving towards the car. Then when you hear the silence, it's both of us closing the doors. And my wife doesn't like hockey all that much. So she turned the volume down. And the whisper you got at the very end was something not very happy at the fact that he couldn't hear the hockey game. Okay, let's try that one again, David. Okay. That's it. What if it was black? I did hear a, I heard a whisper. It sounded like I can't hear or something. That's it. Yes, that was it. He said, I can't hear, which we took as when my wife turned the hockey game down, that he couldn't hear the hockey game anymore. <laughs> there you go. There you I go. Know. So who says they don't have a sense of humor, right? Indeed. Or, and who knew that they would be uh, such great hockey fans? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I've actually lined up the uh, Mississauga Investigation EVP. If you want to hear it through my microphone, I think you might, you'll be able to hear some of it. Oh, this is the girl in the cold room. Yes. All right, let's try it. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. It, here's the clip. Me. I still feel it coming from the room. That's where it's hiding. It's coming out here. You could probably look behind that door, which is a cold room. I guess it's a cold room. Nice and dark and damp. Nobody can see in there. <laughs> yeah, I used to do that when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, man. I gotta get upstairs. My heart is pounding. Oh, 
Oh my. Yeah, I definitely heard that don't go. Yeah, you heard that don't go at the at the end. That's right? yeah, that I tell you man, that, that sent the shivers from Chilled, the tips yeah. of my toes right up to, to the base of my <laughs> spine. Believe me, me too, the exactly the same way. I couldn't believe it when I heard that. It was incredible when when we, I heard that being played back. And the the funny thing was is the investigator who was with me was recording at the same time had a microphone around his neck and did not pick up the recording. Did not, he, the recording is exactly the same, but he didn't pick up the little girl. But yet you, you felt, both of you felt some sort of a, a presence. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. What, what does that feel like? I mean, many of us have experienced it, but describe it. Well, um, boy, I'll tell you, it's like a, sometimes it's like a, oh, it's a wall and it feels like there's a wall behind you and the air gets thick and, and your hair starts to, to rise on your arms, like almost like an electrostatic discharge. Is that what it is? I mean, scientifically speaking, do you think if there is an explanation for that feeling, is it some sort of an electronic discharge? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, it, it would fit in my, in my hypothesis on this, um, with the atmospheric change because the air could be ionized around where um, a paranormal activity is occurring. Um, so, but it's an untested hypothesis, but it all fits with the hypothesis of an atmospheric change. It, and, and, and this same theory you use to per perhaps explain why these EVPs sometimes aren't uh, well, sometimes they're muffled, sometimes they're somewhat garbled, sometimes there's, you have to speed them up to hear them or slow them down. I explain this paranormal atmosphere theory. Sure. Um, so what the, the hypothesis that I've come up with is that wherever paranormal activity is occurring, that where, wh whatever, whatever it's centered around that's causing it... Um, is a different atmosphere than the one that we're in. And so I did a lot of research into how sound waves move and how they react. And they work differently than electromechanical waves or uh, electro, uh, 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 not electromechanical, but uh, oh, electromagnetic waves, um, which again is another reason why I find it I find it hard that there's imprinting on tape through, uh, through some spiritual means because, and everybody says it has things to do with electro EMF or electro, uh, electromagnetic fields. Fields, sorry. And um, uh, what's going on with that is people say that, that paranormal activity has things to do with uh, electromagnetic fields, but I, I really don't believe that. One, in that I have caught um, EVP and had uh, an EMF meter right beside me and it didn't move. And then, um, and then like, uh, I, I, I just can't see how an electromagnetic uh, field can, uh, can make your voice change so much. Um, I believe it's more closer to acoustics. So when I go back to my uh, atmospheric change, 
um, when you see uh, sound waves, it's just like waves in the ocean. And I believe that when the sound waves are being produced inside this paranormal bubble, there's a, this wall between their atmosphere and our atmosphere. And sound in different mediums of atmosphere can change. They can go faster, they can go slower, they can lose their amplification, they can, be, they can be quieter or they can be louder. And I believe it is also causing, if you'll notice, that with a lot of EVPs, you get a change in intonation and how the words are pronounced. And I believe that also has something to do with it. When the sound waves hit our atmosphere from their atmosphere, they're changed. They either go, can go faster or slower, depending on how the sound waves are reacting when it hits our atmosphere. So when we hear it, we hear it differently than what it was when it came out of it, the source, because the atmosphere has changed it. And to corroborate that, uh, that hypothesis, um, you've heard a lot of witnesses, and they'll, you hear it all the time, that, exp uh, that witnesses are experiencing cold spots. Oh, yes. Hot yes. spots. And they, they could all be coming from being in a different atmosphere. And um, they also feel um, dizzy, sick, nauseated, yes. disoriented. Well, all of these things are also connected with a lack of oxygen. So if there was something other than oxygen in the atmosphere, then that, that it's, it's coming from, then you would be feeling this. So you see, there's a cooperation across the board with, with the evidence um, that says that, that it's quite possible that there's an atmospheric difference I got you. And that, and that the, the, the gas, uh, if that's the medium inside that atmosphere, might be different than the medium in, in our oxygen, nitrogen rich atmosphere. And it would be like, you know, someone in a, uh, uh, you know, yelling in a, in, you know, under the water and the, and, the, and the sound traveling through water versus traveling through air. Right. Um, you know, sometimes you're only gonna you're only gonna receive high notes or low notes depending on what the atmosphere is like. Different gases. You you know about the alien movie where and and it's a very famous line where they say in in space no one can hear you scream. Well, that's that's actually true, and it's not because you're in space and you're far away. It's because in space there is no air. So if there's no air. The sound produced by your voice will not travel. It needs, it needs um, a gas or something in there for the, uh, for the uh, acoustic waves to travel through. Without it, you will hear nothing. So uh, these, these, these discarnate, disembodied voices, uh, they come equipped with their own sort of separate atmosphere, I guess, which is the dividing line between this world and the other side. I believe so. Now, again, it's a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis that I'm trying to prove. But uh, all the evidence, there's a lot of strong evidence for it. Um, it, it definitely makes me want to want to investigate it because I, I really 
like it's just every it just seems to fit with all of all of the symptoms of a, of a haunting. But and, and in those cases where you capture a class A, where it's perfectly clear, there's no distortion. You don't need to speed it up or slow it down or enhance it. That means what you and the recording device that captured the EVP had stepped inside that paranormal atmosphere. Yes, actually, I do believe that. Um, I caught. I don't know if I can. I'll try to find it. I don't know if I sent it to you, but there is one particular. EVP and it would have been marked no if you see it um, and this one was taken with my wife and I and we were in our car again and I had um, microphones set up on the dashboard and I had a small parabolic pointed uh, not not my my special one but another one pointed outside the window and it was very cold outside um, and we, it was the first time we tried actually asking questions. So my wife said, um, uh, do you, do you, uh, she said something about the cold. She says, do you, um, uh, like the cold? That's what she said. And then I said, isn't that a silly thing to ask a ghost? And right after that, we hear in a, and this was a class A and it was inside the car. So if it was occurring near the microphones inside the car, then the whole car would have been filled with that atmosphere for however temporary it would have been. And, and you could hear a whisper that says no. And it's very clear. I, even if I told you, you'd, you'd, even though I've told you, you'll still hear it. And um, uh, the funny thing about that one was you could actually hear, and I've heard this on several EVPs, you could actually hear a clicking um, as just before it said something. And then you hear a double click after. It was like it, it clicked into our atmosphere and then it clicked out. Interesting. It, if you were to analyze, you know, run these, run voices through, you know, different mediums, however you would do that, uh, some sort of a chamber and, you know, one chamber you're running the, uh, the, uh, the EVP recording through, a, you know, a nitrogen-rich uh, atmosphere, another one you're running it through helium, another one is heavy in hydrogen, another is through, you know, water, and so on and so forth. Would you not be able to, by analyzing the waves, determine what the, what the medium is, ultimately? Well, I don't know about determining what the medium is, because I don't know if we will ever know the correct mix of gases that they might be in. Um, the one interesting thing uh, about the last EVP was when my wife asked the question, do you feel the cold? Again, you see, this comes from analyzing evidence, which is what we should be doing. Again, I think I mentioned this before to you uh, off air that um, in the paranormal community, we're happy with just getting a voice. And everything that is being questioned is how we're receiving the voice. Well, I'm past that. And now I'm looking at what the voice is saying, how it's saying it, and what it sounds like. So, so when it says no, I'm saying to myself, well, then it doesn't feel the cold. Therefore, it doesn't feel the heat. So I'm wondering what it does feel and what it doesn't feel where it is. And, and so you, but I am one step ahead of you already because I've already started building a chamber 
that I'm going to be putting sound waves through that I can inject different gases through. There so, you go. Yeah, we're on the same wavelength there, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Scary that, scary that. <laughs> now, uh, John, I don't know if this is the EVP that you meant. Well, you know what? Listen, we're going to have you back on, and we're going to... Uh, we're going to uh, enhance some of these and play some more the next time we have you on. But I got to tell you, man, you are on the the, uh, the, the cutting edge of uh, EVP science. You're doing great work and uh, you're a fascinating individual. And I thank you for coming on tonight. Well, I thank you have, for having me. I, uh, uh, it was, it's been very enjoyable and um, I hope I didn't talk your ear off. <laughs> you can talk my ear off anytime. John... Mitzi is with uh, Para Researchers Ontario. My thanks also to Helka Ferry for joining us discussing uh, Lyme disease. Now, there's another scary topic. David Gaskin, thank you. Uh, back next week, live from Los Angeles with Adam Go Rightly. Happy Trails to High Weirdness, the name of his new book. And of course, uh, Grant Jeffrey talking about the shadow government and uh, how they are using surveillance against you. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Day to you. Hey, Bye. where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.